everyone and welcome. I'm Susan Bright, Regional Managing Partner for the UK and Africa here at Hogan Lovells and the leader of our Brexit Task Force. And this is the latest webinar in our Brexit series, Navigating the Negotiations. Our last webinar was in December and we heard from a number of my colleagues uh, about latest developments, including the position on the Irish backstop and some practical actions you can be taking to prepare for a possible no-deal scenario, including specific issues around data. You can access uh, the webinar recording and also short podcasts looking specifically at the Irish backstop and data sections of that webinar on our Brexit hub. Despite all the activity in Parliament and uh, in Number 10, um, we need to um, update ourselves and find out what's been going on since the last webinar, uh, and also to remind ourselves as to how to prepare for what's looking like a very real prospect of a no-deal scenario on the 29th of March. So today, we are going to cover the following. So latest developments, as usual, uh, and then um, looking at uh, contracts and what you need to think about in a no-deal scenario. And then also, um, we're going to look separately at enforcement of judgments uh, in a no-deal scenario. And finally, looking at where we are on trade relations more generally. So today, I'm really pleased to be joined by a number of my colleagues. So Andrew Eaton, who is in our public law and policy team. Jane Summerfield from our commercial law team. Paul Chaplin in our disputes team. And Aileen Dussin who heads up our UK trade practice. So, as usual, Andrew, over to you for the latest developments, please. Thanks, Susan. 56 days to go until Brexit. On the 15th of January 2019, the UK Parliament emphatically rejected the withdrawal agreement and political declaration painstakingly negotiated by the government over the past 20 months since triggering Article 50 in March 2017. The government stated it recognised real change was needed and proceeded to hold private talks with the various factions to seek to ascertain what changes were necessary for MPs to support the deal. On Tuesday this week, MPs voted on an amendable motion tabled by the Prime Minister to which MPs could propose their own amendments. Many amendments were tabled, covering all possibilities from extending Article 50, setting course for a second referendum, indicative votes on the various Brexit outcomes, and seeking to prevent no deal. This vote was the first opportunity for MPs since the meaningful vote to assert their will on the government. The outcome of the vote was that MPs chose to back two amendments. The first amendment, tabled by Graham Brady MP, chair of the 1922 committee, which provided that MPs were minded to support the Prime Minister's deal if the Irish backstop was removed and replaced with, in quotes, alternative arrangements. The second amendment was tabled by Caroline Spellman MP, which was, well, by which MPs rejected the idea of the UK leaving the EU with no deal. One notable amendment that was narrowly rejected by MPs was the amendment put forward by Yvette Cooper MP, which would have resulted in the government being obliged to seek an extension of the Article 50 period if no deal was reached by the end of February. The Cooper Amendment was defeated in part by Labour MPs, 14 of whom defied the Labour whips to vote against the amendment and 11 of whom abstained. As a result, MPs have sent a mixed message 
that while they do not agree with the idea of a no-deal Brexit, at this point, they are not willing to take any steps to prevent a no-deal from happening. The vote was portrayed as a victory for Theresa May, who was said to have united her party around a plan for a way forward, namely to convince the EU to reopen negotiations on the backstop. This suggestion was instantly rebuffed in a unanimous fashion by a considerable number of EU27 leaders, as well as the presidents of the European Council and the EU Commission. The message from the EU has been both strong and stable ever since. No renegotiation of the withdrawal agreement or the backstop. For now, the government has the backing of Parliament for its plan to push for renegotiation of the agreement. Theresa May's plan appears to be to wait for the EU to fold and give the UK what it wants in fear of a no-deal Brexit. It remains to be seen whether this strategy will work. The next parliamentary date to mark in your calendars is the 14th of February 2019, when MPs will once again vote on an amendable motion. Assuming no renegotiated settlement is reached before then, this will be another test of MPs' mettle. Is this the moment they will call time on the Prime Minister's plan and step in to seek to avert a no-deal Brexit, for example by voting for a second iteration of the Cooper Amendment? Or instead, will MPs allow the Prime Minister to continue to wind down the clock on the negotiations until the last moment? Despite the political drama in recent weeks, it is important to remind ourselves that the fundamentals remain the same. The default position in law is that the UK will leave the EU at 11pm on the 29th of March, with or without a deal. Whether anything will happen before then to prevent a no-deal outcome remains unknown. As such, a no-deal outcome cannot be discounted. Andrew, thank you very much for setting the scene. <clears throat> We're now going to turn to Jane Summerfield to offer us an insight into what this means for contracts and what practical steps businesses can be taking to be ready for the 29th of March. So, Jane, over to you. Thank you, Susan. So, we've had many queries from clients relating to the impact of Brexit on contracts ranging from questions on individual clauses, such as would Brexit be considered a force majeure event, to reviewing existing contracts and portfolios of contracts for risks arising from Brexit, uh, all the way through to how to Brexit-proof new contracts that are being negotiated either as standalone agreements or as part of a wider transaction. So I'm going to provide a practical overview of how to approach reviewing contracts for Brexit-related risks uh, and also provide some insights based on our experience of advising companies on their Brexit contract preparations. Even if you've been planning for Brexit for some time and are well prepared as a business, for many companies, the focus to date has been on other areas such as regulation, licenses, trade customs, data, etc. And they haven't yet considered both the direct impact of Brexit on their contracts and also the impact of other changes to their business that then need to be flowed down through to their contracts. So given there's potentially 56 days to go, what can you do now? So the first step is understanding your contract portfolio. Um, it may sound an obvious point, but a number of companies have contracts in different places. Some are dealt by the legal team, some are held by procurement teams. So making sure you understand what you're starting with. The next step is then identifying and prioritizing those key contracts. And again, this will very much depend on your business. But for example, manufacturing companies are very much focusing on their supply chain contracts first. Next step is risk assessing and understanding the exposure in those contracts. And I'll take you through that process next and then also mitigation options and what you might want to do. So the first part of any risk assessment is understanding both the legal and the business impacts of a no-deal Brexit. 
there are a number of different legal impacts that potentially spin out of Brexit, and some of them include trade and customs, potentially new requirements and new costs, uh, regulation changes, potentially new licenses that might be needed to carry on selling or supplying to the EU27 post-Brexit. Uh, and UK data flows, where you're moving data from the UK over to the EU in a no-deal scenario, uh, you may need to address this in your contract through uh, mechanisms such as standard contractual clauses. And obviously, the legal impacts need to be taken together with your own business environment, so looking at your own supply chain, your suppliers, your internal business, your customers, and your channels to market. The other element to factor in is, is the right perspective. So what is the particular contract you're looking at? What is it about? Is it a goods or services contract? Is it around a regulated activity? And what is the context? Is it an existing contract, which you might be reluctant to reopen for negotiation? Or is it a new contract where there might be more flexibility to make changes at this stage? And is the contract part of a wider transaction? Also, what is your objective and what is your relationship with the counterparty? So are you looking to potentially get out of the contract? Might your counterparty be looking to do so? Or are you simply looking to understand the risk within that contract at the moment? Another area is whether you should be Brexit-specific or not and whether you want to, to deal with it via a particular Brexit clause. Now, in most cases, it makes sense to actually address risks through non-Brexit-specific clauses, but there may be certain circumstances where you're particularly worried about something uh, being triggered by Brexit where you actually refer to that in the contract. So bringing the legal risks and these, the business environment and this perspective together, the next step is to identify the potential Brexit-related risks that are relevant to that specific <coughs> contract. The examples that we've seen from risk assessment, the assessments that we've carried out have included things like delays to delivery, uh, the need to potentially stockpile increased amount of goods, the ability to use alternative suppliers, what happens if service levels aren't met, for example. And you may, be, you may decide to focus on, say, the top three risks, the top five risks, the top ten risks, again, very much depending on your, on your circumstances. The next step is then to take those risks once you have your list uh, and turn, turn to the contract itself. So in broad terms, there are four conceptual buckets of provisions to think about. The first bucket is the provisions where Brexit potentially creates either a risk or potentially an opportunity. So for example, whether a, a force majeure clause might be triggered. The next bucket is provisions that impact on your commercial risk mitigation. So if there's something that you want to change uh, in response to a potential no deal, are you able to do that under the contract already? Is there something that might make that harder for you to do? The third bucket is reflecting Brexit-driven changes to your business operations. So where, for example, you've had to move a license to a different entity, do you also need to potentially move your contract or have the ability to move the contract to that entity as well, uh, or to reflect a change in the supply chain structure? And then the final bucket is terms or provisions that might not work post-Brexit, either because the reference doesn't work anymore. So a, a classic example here would be a reference to EU as a territory, whether that will include the UK going forward or not under the contract. And by linking this list of risks and the different buckets of provisions, you can then start to focus again on prioritising the contracts you want to look at and which provisions within those contracts to focus on. The types of mediation options that are, are available obviously include amending existing provisions um, and whether that's something that you, you want to do in an existing contract. It might be a standard letter um, if it's changing something like a definition, but it might be involve negotiation if it's changing an existing negotiated term. Um, whether you want to address something in the drafting of a new agreement, but in many cases, the, the outcome will actually be logging the risk and monitoring it and just being aware of it going forward. The kind of provisions to focus on, um, drilling down a little deeper, include where references to the EU don't work, so whether it's a territory, to EU legislation or licenses, 
um, and to the interpretation clause, making sure it's broad enough to cover where legislation, uh, which has previously been at EU level, will be implemented into UK national law. Um, where you're thinking about things like increased costs, obviously you look at your price provisions, expenses, customs, who has responsibility for any costs on that front, um, and looking at obligations that might be breached, so around staffing levels, delivery times, quality, KPIs, etc. It's also really important to look at the flexibility you have under the contract when it comes to things like exclusivity, whether you can potentially uh, use a dual source and work with another supplier, um, your ability to increase stockpiling, whether you can move the contract to another party or actually terminate, um, and triggers, things that might change under, might be triggered under the contract, so change of control clauses, material adverse change clauses, etc. And also the wider piece on liability, your warranties, you've got reasonable endeavours, and how that might be affected by, by what happens with Brexit. So drawing all of this together, the risk assessment is broadly as follows. So first of all, looking at what are the most likely risks that could be triggered by Brexit, and then taking the current position under the contract and looking at what obligations you have, are they clear, and what are the consequences under that contract if those obligations are breached. In terms of your potential mitigation actions, are they supported by the contract already, does anything need to be changed, and what other provisions are relevant. So to take this as a practical example, if you look at, it, for example, a supply contract for products, some of the most likely risks that you might want to think about are around late delivery or non-delivery, potential price increases, additional costs from customs duties, etc., and potentially product quality issues. Under the current contract, you'd want to focus on delivery terms, remedies for late or non-delivery, um, how pricing works and ability to increase that by how much, who's responsible for the different costs, and whether there are warranties around product quality or specifications in there already. The kind of mitigation actions you might be thinking about would be making sure obligations are, are clear enough, you might want to make them clearer, whether there are remedies that could be added in, and, and how those costs are allocated if the contract is currently silent. You might include uh, specifications or additional warranties, or think about changing the stockpiling provisions for greater flexibility. And then the other provisions to think about would be, again, around references to EU legislation, exclusivity restrictions, minim minimum volume commitments, uh, your liability caps and how the force majeure contract clause is drafted. So just to finish on a few very practical tips, I think the first point is, is very much Brexit is not just a UK contract issue. We've been working with a number of companies who've looked at their contracts and thought, well, there isn't a UK company as a contracting party here. Brexit's not relevant to us. But actually what we're increasingly seeing is what a global issue this is. So for example, if you have a US company who's supplying to a French company, but the goods are routed through the UK, or the US company has a key supplier in the UK, Brexit will still be relevant to that contract. Um, second, I think, is leveraging internal knowledge to prioritise your key contracts. So we've seen a number of companies find this step fairly difficult to work out, well, what do we need to focus on? And actually, a very practical shortcut is to sit down with uh, your supply team or your contract team and, and get them to talk you through, well, here are the key suppliers and where do we start? Next thing is don't forget your key systems and your back office contracts. So you may need changes, for example, to your accounting system to include new customs points. You need to think about how you can do that under your contract uh, and getting in touch with your supplier there to take that forward. Also, don't forget to check for contractual impacts of your regulatory or supply chain structures. As I mentioned earlier, we're seeing a number of companies being very focused on that and, and not yet picking up how that changes the contractual structure that underlies those regulatory changes. Also, maintaining flexibility to respond depending on the outcome. So obviously many people are focused on preparing for a potential no deal and so doing things like signing up to additional warehouse capacity or appointing authorised representatives. But to the extent you can, obviously trying to make sure that you're not committed to that additional warehouse capacity unless there is a no deal scenario.
And finally, if you're looking for drafting suggestions or additional checklists, uh, please have a look on our Brexit hub. There's lots of useful information there. Jane, thank you very much indeed. Now, we've had um, a number of questions from clients about um, the enforcement of judgments in um, a no-deal scenario, so in a cross-border setting. So we thought this time we'd have a spotlight on that, and we've invited Paul Chaplin in to talk you all through that. So, Paul, over to you. Thank you very much. Um, I just first wanted to remind you all what the current position is. So enforcement of judgments um, in the EU is currently governed by the recast Brussels regulation. Uh, the system and cooperation enjoyed under that regime enables easy and speedy enforcement of foreign judgments in the courts of other member states without any declaration of enforceability being required. So it's a very straightforward process. Um, the definition of judgment as well is very wide in relation to that. So as well as money judgments, including cost orders, it does cover injunctions, interim orders, such as freezing orders, and in certain instances, um, default judgments. And the relevance of that um, uh, will, will become clear um, when I talk about what, what's going to happen post-Brexit if there's a no-deal scenario. So then, so looking at what uh, the EU and the UK have said about uh, a no-deal scenario, well, in the last uh, two months, there has been a bit of a development um, in respect of the respective positions on um, civil uh, judicial cooperation in the event of a no-deal. If I take the UK first, um, in September last year, the UK government published um, its no-deal guidance notice in relation to that, uh, and that set out what uh, the UK government was, gonna, it was proposing it was going to do. Um, it followed up um, in December with a draft uh, statutory instrument and regulations which set out in a bit more detail um, the proposals. Um, the key point is that the recast Brussels regulation that I've just been talking about will be repealed and the position will revert back to reliance on the relevant UK domestic laws. Bear in mind it's not just England and Wales, um, there's Scots law and Northern Irish law as well. Um, in England, the common law rules on the enforcement of foreign judgments will apply. These require, require an applicant to bring a claim in the UK at courts. It's equivalent to like a bringing a debt claim, and the foreign judgment itself will then form part of the evidence that supports that action. The common law, and I think this is a key point to note, the common law and statutory rules of England and Wales, Northern Ireland and Scotland are very well developed and are well understood by both um, the lawyers that sort of deal with them on a daily basis and, and the courts themselves. Because you've got to remember that these courts and these rules have continued to apply on to cross-border matters um, to um, all, all of those cases that are brought before them where the Brussels regime doesn't apply. So it's a tried and tested regime of private international law rules which are, are being applied on a daily basis. For example, in relation to enforcement of US judgments, Japanese judgments, Australian judgments. The other key point um, that's happened um, on the 28th of December, the UK deposited its instrument of accession to the Hague Convention. And the, Hague, the Convention itself will come into force in the UK in its own right, with currently a member through our membership of the EU, uh, on the 1st of April um, 2019. Um, the Hague Convention, and I think it probably makes sense just to remind you what that covers, um, the Hague Convention um, is relevant in this situation where there are exclusive uh, jurisdiction agreements between parties um, in a dispute. Um, all the contracting states, so currently that's all EU member states, Montenegro, Mexico and Singapore, are required to enforce any judgment made by a specified court within those jurisdictions. 
But the Hague Convention is not a complete answer and there are a number of limitations to it. It applies only in respect of pre-existing exclusive jurisdiction clauses. Uh, it doesn't cover interim protective measures such as freezing orders or injunctions. And uh, if the exclusive jurisdiction clause was entered into prior to the 1st of October 2015, when the Hague Convention um, first came into, um, came into action, um, then it doesn't apply. Uh, there is also some debate as to whether or not the date in relation to the UK will actually start from the 1st of April when it exceeds as well, although that is not entirely clear. Um, the other point about the Hague Convention, it does list specific substantive exclusions to its scope, which include insolvency, arbitration, consumer law, employment law, antitrust and insurance matters. So there are a number of things which are excluded from it. So the EU position they, the EU published a notice in January, um, a notice to stakeholders. Um, this notice doesn't have legal force, but it does clarify what the EU think its position is going to be. It highlights that domestic enforcement rules will apply to the EU 27 jurisdictions post-Brexit. So like the EU, those domestic laws um, are well developed in each of those EU 27 states. And given the long-standing existence of cooperation, it seems unlikely that the EU27 courts will restrict the enforcement of an English judgment post-Brexit. Therefore, we expect that judgments from the English courts will continue to be enforceable in a member state and vice versa. There's also nothing to indicate that English judgments will be any more difficult to enforce in the EU27 than a judgment from any third country, such as the US and Japan. Um, we've prepared a, a, a flowchart which helps to explain some of the key points. Um, I, I must note that this flowchart does deal with civil and commercial matters only, so it doesn't deal with any criminal issues. Um, the reason for limiting to that is those are the topics that are covered by the Recast Brussels regulation. So, seeking to enforce an EU27 judgment in an English court, so that's going down uh, the left-hand side um, of the um, flowchart. The first question that you have to ask is what date was the judgment handed down by the court in the EU um, member state? The significance of this, though, is because of what the UK has said in its draft regulations. These indicate that post-Brexit, the Brussels regime will continue to apply in the English courts to a judgment of an EU 27 court handed down prior to exit day. As such, then the Brussels recast regulation would then apply. The second question then is if the judgment um, was handed down after the 30th of March, then does the Hague Convention apply? And as I said earlier, the Hague Convention states that enforcement of the judgment can only be refused by the English court on very limited grounds, and there cannot be a review of the merits. So that would be quite helpful if that does apply. But obviously, even if it does apply, English domestic procedures for the recognition and enforcement um, will still continue to apply. Uh, and those are set out in the Civil Procedure Rules, um, CPR 74. If Hague Convention doesn't apply, so we're going down the right-hand side of, of, of that area on the, um, the flowchart, um, if it doesn't apply, then you have to apply English common law. As I stated early, earlier, it does mean that fresh proceedings will have to be brought, and a foreign judgment will be adduced as evidence within those. But a number of points to note, the action has to be, um, the judgment has to relate to a fi final and conclusive matter. It has to be for a sum of money and it has to be on the merits. 
So that does mean that foreign junctions and interim orders won't be able to be enforced under English domestic law. The on the merits point could also provide an additional obstacle. Now, if we then look at enforcing an English judgment in an EU 27 state, that's going down the right-hand side of the flowchart. The EU notice takes a different stance to the UK draft regulation, so there's a slight um, asymmetry between the two positions. Um, it indicates that any English judgment attained prior to exit day or any proceedings pending before exit day, including enforcement actions or proceedings instituted after exit day, then none of those um, will then apply the Recast Brothers regulation. That means that even if you've commenced your enforcement proceedings but haven't concluded them, then you'll probably then have to start again um, and go through the standard EU 27 state procedure. So our advice in relation to that is it's very important that you actually bring and conclude any enforcement action prior to exit day. Similar uh, matters also apply in relation to the Hague Convention. So that's one of the next questions you then need to ask. Um, the benefit of the Hague Convention is that enforcement can't be refused by the EU 27 court. And, and if, well, it can be, but only on very limited grounds and they can't reopen the, the merits analysis as well. However, in comparison with the recast Brussels regulation, it is still necessary to comply with domestic procedures of recognition and enforcement, and these obviously will vary depending on which EU 27 state you're looking at. Obviously, if the Hague Convention doesn't apply, um, then the domestic rules of that EU 27 state will then apply. And, and in many um, legal systems in the EU 27, and that will uh, require you getting a declaration of enforceability going through the exequatur proceedings, um, which are common in each of those states. So therefore, in summary, there will undoubtedly be additional jurisdiction-specific procedural hurdles in relation to enforcement, but it doesn't mean that judgments can't be enforced post-Brexit, both in the EU 27 and within um, the UK courts. But you just need to look at each of the domestic regimes um, to see what you have to do in order to enforce. Cool, thanks very much indeed. Uh, next, we're going to turn to Aileen Doucin, who's going to be offering an insight into what all of this means from a trade perspective, and very specifically, thinking in a, in a no-deal scenario, um, we would revert to WTO rules, and some people have referred to this as a sort of managed WTO Brexit. What does that mean for all of us? Uh, and then secondly, also looking um, at customs and anticipating additional customs processes in a no-deal scenario. So, Aileen, over to you. Thank you. Thank you, Suzanne. And yes, today, in the few minutes that I have, I want to take you to two different places. The first one will be in Geneva. And what you can see on the picture here, if um, you have been um, looking at WTO negotiation, is the headquarter, the secretariat of the WTO, the World Trade Organization, in Geneva. And um, uh, lastly, I will take you more to the practicality of what it means to trade uh, between EU27 and the UK, so um, um, Dover, Calais, and other EU ports. But first, uh, Geneva, that's the first stop. And what I wanted to talk to you uh, today about is really what, what will the UK trading rules will look like uh, under current WTO rules in the event of a no-deal Brexit. 
So one thing that is for sure is that WTO law and international trade law is about to become a whole lot more relevant to UK businesses and EU27 businesses once uh, the UK leaves the EU, and even more so if, if we don't have a deal by the 29th of March 2019. Sorry. And at the moment, as you know, UK importers currently buy goods from other EU member states without trade restrictions, be them quantitative or qualitative, although VAT or specific custom duties can still apply. Well, upon Brexit, of course, this landscape will completely change because UK importers of EU goods, but conversely, EU importers of UK goods will face tariff barriers and will be able to pay custom duties when importing from the EU27 or the other way around. So what are those WTO terms that the UK will be sort of looking to apply? And where are we in terms of the negotiations of those terms with the other WTO uh, members? Well, as you know, the UK has been a WTO member since the 1st of January 1995, which is the date where the WTO was created. And it was a member of the GATT since January 1948. So 1948, of course, before the whole creation of the European Union. So for the past decades, the UK has been trading with the rest of the world by using what it's called legally the EU schedules of concessions for trade in goods and the EU schedules of commitments for trade in services. Those schedules are shared between the 28 member states, even though the UK is a member in its own right to the WTO agreements, it applies what the EU member states as a customs union applies across its own EU borders. Those are the schedules. Upon its withdrawal from the EU, the EU schedules will no longer be automatically applicable to the UK. So it means that the UK will have to start using its own schedule of concessions for trade in goods and schedules of commitment for trade in services vis-à-vis -vis all the other WTO members, including the EU27 member states. And a lot has been um, uh, ongoing in Geneva for the past two years and a half. The UK government has been talking extensively to its WTO partners, including its EU partner in Geneva, in essence stating that what it wanted to do as a, a post-Brexit uh, sort of trading policy will be to make its WTO Brexit job, as I, as I call it, as easy as possible for everyone, including for the UK itself, but also for its main and all the WTO trading partners. What it means is that the UK government wants to keep as much as possible the same as what currently exists as a member of the EU. So basically what it wants is copying and pasting those commitments for goods and services for its own post-Brexit trading terms. Well, that sounds fairly easy, but as we all know, especially in the time of, of turmoil at trade policy level, including in, in Geneva, international trade policy never is really that simple. It is true that most commitments, such as tariff on goods, can simply be copied across, and we don't think that this could be such a big of a deal. Uh, for the reason the UK's initial approach has been to say to WTO members that what it wanted to do was not to negotiate new terms, but really to rectify those terms, which you know, legally speaking, but practically speaking, meant that it did not need to negotiate concessions from other WTO partners. 
This has been accepted for a number of um, tariff lines for goods, but in specific instances, it's more difficult. A number of WTO members raised objections to this approach, in a sense stating that this UK proposal that had been negotiated and agreed upon with the EU was leaving them worse off i.e. the access to both the EU27 market but also the UK market was um, uh, less advantageous than what they were currently enjoying. And those um, difficulties center specifically on specific tariff lines that we call the tariff rate quotas that apply to very sensitive uh, products, sensitive i.e. politically, uh, but also, of course, practically, including on agricultural products. So where does that leave us? Well, it leaves us in, 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 in a position where the UK government has had to change its negotiating line in Geneva and last October uh, formally announced that it was no longer only rectifying those schedules, but it was formally opening, ne opening, opening sorry, negotiations with its WTO members. And at time of speaking, we know that uh, negotiations are ongoing. There are uh, talks that have been um, uh, uh, extensive for a number of months and weeks, but still uh, the U.S., Brazil, Argentina, and other large exporters of agricultural products to the EU and the U.K. markets are very vocal on this issue. That's with respect to goods, but let's not forget let's not forget that WTO rules also apply with regards to services. And in December, on the 3rd of December, if you have been following uh, Geneva news as we have here at Hogan Lavalt, you will have seen that the UK submitted its draft schedule of commitments to the WTO on services uh, on the 3rd of December last year. Again, considering that this notification at WTO level was just a simple rectification of its commitments and there was no formal negotiation needed. Well, just a few weeks ago, Taiwan, Russia, and Costa Rica objected to that, and it, they raised concern on a number of specific services sectors saying that this ratification was not acceptable to them, negotiation had to occur, including on financial services, aircraft um, leasing a specific sector, and, rental, and other rental services. So what does that mean for, uh, for you and for us? Is there another trade war looming? Well, um, at this stage, let's mitigate uh, the potential risk. Uh, the world is still coming to accept the prospect of a no deal between the UK and the EU27. And at WTO level, those talks are still very much moving ahead at full speed. So we would hope that those potential concerns will be finally closed by the 29th of March 2019. But still, it is very important that you as importer, but also um, uh, your counterparts, anticipate what change in your tariff lines will have on your trading flows. Review your income term, your income term provisions in your contract, review the main contract, but also the purchase order lines, and which entity will bear the cost of this additional um, uh, costs. Um, so that's, that's all for WTO and Geneva processes. Now we move on to the practicalities of doing international trade, i.e. customs, 
uh, law and customs paperwork. And that takes us away from Geneva because WTO law does not deal with enforcement of customs uh, process processes and takes us more to the to the pure um, EU uh, legal framework and EU customs rules that we currently apply here in the UK. So in a nutshell, and this has been said by the UK government, but equally on the other side of, of the channel by the EU, uh, if the UK was to leave the EU uh, in March, uh, there will be, of course, immediate changes, i.e. on day one, to the procedure that apply to uh, business trading with the EU27. Free circulation of goods, that is, of course, one of the main uh, um, you know, principles under the treaty, the, the EU treaty, will cease uh, on uh, that um, you know, 30th of March, and you and your EU counterpart will have to fill imports and export paperwork. And traders can do that themselves. We have a number of, of clients who choose because they have the capacity to do that and they have trained uh, teams who deal with those aspects to just self-file directly with HMRC or um, the French customer authorities their own import and export uh, paperwork. But most of our clients, and a number of, of you, I'm sure, on the phone, uh, rely on uh, custom brokers' support. And what is very important to note, as I'm sure uh, you already know, uh, we anticipate that the volumes for both the number of customs declaration, but also the number of broker engagements uh, will skyrocket in the event of a no-deal Brexit um, uh, past uh, 29th of March. So what do you need to do? What do you need to know, both from a UK but also an EU perspective, uh, to anticipate those changes? Well, you have to look at it from a sort of um, two sides of the same coin, I want to say. On the UK side, you need to start thinking, if you are not already, but of course, uh, you need to start thinking of registering for a UK economic operator registration and indictment identification number, the so-called EORI number, which is basically your customs identity and allows you to submit import and export customs declaration here with HMRC. You need, as my uh, colleague Jane was saying, you need to review your contracts. We hope that you've done that already. Look at the INCO terms that you're using and, uh, of course, assess you as UK entity uh, becoming an importer in your uh, contractual term. What is very important is you need to start engaging with your customs brokers if you are using custom brokers. Uh, and, and start discussing with them or your freight forwarders, your logistics providers, uh, uh, to assess their level of no-deal contingency preparations, because they will be the one that will be sort of moving your goods across border. And the last thing you want is you being at the end of their priority uh, queue when it comes to uh, moving your products on the other side. Of course, it's also a good time, as ever, to review the correct customs classification that you are using, uh, both from a U uh, of course, the customs classification rules at this stage are all EU-derived uh, rules, but it's uh, very important to make sure that you are using the correct codes and it's not an easy exercise and that the valuation, the customs valuation of your goods are properly assessed. 
that's for the UK side. And, and on the other side, on the EU27 side, well, you know, most of those steps will also equally have to be applied by your EU27 counterparts. Indeed, it's, it's very important to remember that in, in the context of a no-deal Brexit, trading partners in the EU will also have to apply customs, excise, and VAT procedures to goods that they receive from UK businesses in exactly the same way that they do currently for goods that they receive from outside of the EU. And as you know, the difficulty in Europe is that there is no such thing as an EU-wide custom authority. So if it's easy for the UK to prepare with HMRC its own customs no-deal preparation, it's not so much the case in Europe because uh, the French customs will have to do its own preparation, uh, the Germans will do their, their own work, and so on. Um, the implementation of customs law under EU uh, rules still very much lies within member states' competence. And this puts Calais, Rotterdam, Dunkirk, Antwerp, and other EU airports and heavily UK-focused import points on a high-priority list to start test running their no-deal capacity planning, which we know some ports have already started doing, but not all of them. In advance of, this, of these changes and knowing that uh, no-deal Brexit equally impacts EU entities, the Commission has started to apply, as part of its no-deal preparedness measures, um, uh, some um, uh, measures to anticipate uh, those um, risk for EU operators. And what it did is that it allowed, it has just uh, now allowed uh, EU27 traders, um, uh, it's, it's allowing them to, to apply, to start applying for authorization and access to the EU uh, IT custom systems in advance of withdrawal date, which is very important because, of course, uh, as we speak, the UK is a member of the EU, so normally you can't do that for trading that is exclusively uh, with uh, intra-EU. We also know that a number of EU uh, customs authorities are hiring very heavily in, the antici in, in anticipation of the deal. The French uh, douane have announced that they are, they are recruiting 700 agents by 2020. So all in all, it is time to prepare for Brexit, uh, now more than ever, not necessarily only in the UK, but also on the EU side. Eileen, thank you very much indeed. Um, and now just to finish up um, how we can help. Um, for further help and guidance, do please visit our dedicated Brexit hub, which you can find at hoganlovells.com forward slash Brexit. Um, this really gathers together all of our latest thinking on the legal issues around Brexit. And you can also find the recording of this webinar and previous webinars uh, on the Hub. And you can also sign up for our regular Brexit bulletin email using there's a button at the top of the page. We will be holding further webinars in this series, Navigating the Negotiations, so please look out and we'll let you know when the next one will be. And finally, as always, if you have questions on anything we've talked about today, or if you wish to discuss how Brexit may impact your business and how you can best prepare, then do get in touch with one of us or another member of our Brexit task force, or simply email 
brexit at hoganubbles.com. So to finish, it just leaves me to say thank you to each of my colleagues who have spoken to you today and to thank all of you for joining us and for listening. Mm -hmm.